Good morning. Uh, I want to welcome you. My name is Bland. I'm the lead pastor. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, we are, you know, one week out from Easter. It was incredible to be able to gather with 150 of you last week at the uh, park, uh, Lars Anderson. Um, that went very well, by the way. We've we've <laughs> heard no complaints or concerns about it. Uh, you can be praying for that, though, because you know we we we're going to put our feelers out to see if we could do that again later in May. Um, but you can pray for that. And please always be praying right now for a uh, a space that we can meet regularly because we'd like to transition away from this being our primary uh, means of worship and connection and being able to actually go and, you know, get back either into the school or into another uh, short-term space. We believe we'll be able to get back into the school at some point, but I'm uh, not sure if that's going to be soon or, or maybe a little later in the summer or the fall. Um, and so uh, would love for you to just be praying for God to open up a space for us to gather regularly. So um, for those that can, uh, if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open to Second uh, Samuel chapter 12. Um, and today we're going to be bringing back the Q&A after the sermon. So uh, I'm uh, the the number to text should be on the screen. It's 617-942-0753. Um, 617-942-0753. Um, and we'll see if we can get that on the screen for you. But we're going to, um, yeah, there it is. Uh, so uh, text that sometime before the end of the worship time, and we'll dive into those questions. We're going to be talking about some heavy stuff today, so I feel like you might have uh, some thoughts and, and questions about that. I'm certainly not going to be able to deal with, with uh, what we're talking about in its fullness in our time together. So uh, be sure to text your question in. All right, uh, now, question for you. How many of you really like to have someone come to you and point out your faults? How many of you like someone to come to you, point out your sin, right? Nobody. I, I don't, I've never met anyone that, that just loves to have someone come to them, right? Like, yes, please, please tell me more, you know, please point out more in my life, right? Um, and, and yet we would all admit that it's those people that uh, through, through coming to us have often in our lives helped us to really grow. Um, and on the, but on the flip side, very, very few of us love really going to someone and talking to them about uh, a sin uh, in their life, whether it's a sin against them or a sin against someone else or a pattern that we see in their lives. Very few of us like to do that. So we, we have both uh, uh, an aversion to having people come to us uh, and, 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 and talk to us. And then on the flip side, we have an aversion to being that type of person. And the, the problem is that that's not uh, what Jesus's family looks like. That's not how Jesus's family operates. Jesus came to us in truth and love. He came to us um, in a way that, that, that challenges who we are, um, but not in a way to condemn, but helps us to grow. And this, I would argue, and today what we're going to talk about is a primary method. And I say primary, not secondary, tertiary. It is central to the way God wants you and I to grow in life. Um, today, we're going to see this modeled uh, as an example of what it looks like in Jesus's family, we're going to see it modeled in the life of David. Uh, if you remember, we are in a series through uh, King, the, the life of, of David, King David. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, we dealt with a situation that's really part one of today's message, but it was the story of David and Bathsheba. And if you're not familiar with that and you're new, uh, the story of David and Bathsheba, David was king over Israel. He was uh, not doing what he was supposed to. Late one afternoon, he was on the roof of his 
palace. He looked down because he could see the whole city. Everything was down from the palace. And he looks over and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. And he decide, he starts to lust after her and he decides to take her. And, and he brings her into the palace and, and, uh, and then ends up getting her pregnant. Now, uh, he finds out, you know, this is the, the wife of one of his most trusted soldiers, his David's mighty men, these 30 men that were his most trusted soldiers and guards. Uh, his name was Uriah. And, and, and David tried to, to deceive Uriah into thinking the baby was his, but was unsuccessful. So then finally had Uriah killed, right? And then took Bathsheba, his wife, to be his wife. Um, and so this was a really serious experience. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it's maybe the, one of the most long and detailed accounts of, of a pattern of sin uh, in all of scripture uh, for an individual. And today, but today we're going to pick up on the backside of that story when Nathan the prophet, who's, who's the court prophet, comes to David. So follow along, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. When I'm done, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. I invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which it had brought. Bought, And he brought it up and grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. And there came a traveler to the rich man who was unwilling, uh, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up against evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of his son of the son for this uh, for you did it secretly but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son David said to Nathan I have sinned against the Lord and Nathan said to David the Lord also has put away your sin you shall not die nevertheless because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord the, the child who is born to you shall die then Nathan went to his house this is the word of the Lord now, real quickly, there's a lot of like judgment there and, and, and the repercussions for David's life and even for his son. I will actually get to that message next week and kind of talking about, we'll see that story play out in David's life. But what I want us to look at today from this text and then from David's uh, repentance is, is approaching sin. How do we approach sin? How do we deal with sin uh, in, in others? And then uh, from David's perspective, how do you repent? How do, you, how do you repent well? 
Um, and as I said, this is central. This idea of dealing with sin, approaching sin, and repenting is central to what God is doing in the midst of his family, uh, his church, to make us more like Christ. This is the, a, a primary means of our growth and sanctification. And the question is, are we willing to step into it? All right, so let's see uh, how we approach sin like Nathan did here. What does it look like to confront sin in another person? Well, there's three, three kind of characteristics here that play out through scripture as well in, in, the, New, in the New Testament specific commands about it, but uh, it's humility, wisdom, and loving truth. Humility, wisdom, and loving truth. So humility is, was Nathan coming to David, but not just blowing him up. He could have walked into the, the king's chamber and said, David, look at you, you blew it. You're a, you're a horrible king. You are, you're worse than Saul. You know, could have just could have just blown him up, but but Nathan came in humility. Um, he models humility to uh, David. Now, why is this important for you and I? Humility obviously is important because people tend to receive things that come from humble people, but. There's a very important spiritual dimension on our part as well that, that relates and says we that humility uh, is important because we're dealing with a, a very sober and somber reality of sin in others. And, and we can end up, when dealing with sin in others, becoming self-righteous about ourselves. So Galatians 6, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Listen, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So this is a picture of humility, of coming to another person. And I believe this whole text is, is really about that, these three verses, um, because he says, bear one another's uh, burdens. And it's bearing the burden of another person's sin. They're struggling with this. This is a reality in their life. This is not a, hey, just one-off, even though sometimes one-off sins need to be addressed because they're very serious. But, but this is a pattern and we're going to them. When we go to them, we're, we're choosing to bear their burden and not come in above them telling them how much better we are than them. Humility is essential. Jesus said, get the log out of your own eye before you go and get a speck out of your friend's eye or your neighbor's eye. So what he's saying is, and this is where humility comes, have, a, have an absolutely uh, thorough and honest assessment of your own sin before you go talk to someone else. That is one way to make sure you don't go in prideful, right? Is, is to, to have an honest assessment and awareness of your own sin. So be repenting before you call others to be repenting, basically, uh, is, is a pattern of humility. But we also see wisdom. Nathan didn't confront David directly, did he, right? <laughs> I mean, maybe he could have come in and said, hey, David, you know, guns blazing. David, you really blew this. So look at you, you've, you've, you've committed uh, 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 adultery and you murdered her husband so you could have her and avoid uh, any sense of, of shame in publicly, even though you are shameful and you did commit sin. He could have done that. He might have died, right? <laughs> because David was king. Uh, and so he came wisely, said, how? I know King David. So he was a, he was a court, uh, court prophet for David, a court advisor. Uh, so Nathan knew David and knew how to come to him, knew, to, knew, hey, you know what? David has a really strong sense of justice in his life. Um, and we can see this earlier in how he wouldn't take out Saul, even though he had opportunity to, uh, King Saul before him. He, he chose instead to actually um, not, uh, not take Saul 
Saul out, but to um, you know practice justice there. And God Himself uh, was was honored by that. So Nathan knew that, and so he came to him with a story, right? This story of the lamb and the the poor man and the the rich man. Um, and this story, what it did is it, it 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 David's guard wasn't up. David listened to the story and engaged. Now, I'm not suggesting you need to go tell a story to your friend who's caught, you know, caught in, uh, you know, uh, is committing sin or adultery or something. And you say to them, you know, there's a person and that person is sleeping with someone they're not supposed to. You know, uh, don't, <laughs> that may not be the wise idea, but the point here is there's wisdom. Understanding the person that you're dealing with and the situation you're dealing with, with, with sin uh, spending time in prayer, asking for God to give you godly wisdom, um, it, it can be very helpful in going to a person. And then finally, loving truth. So we see humility, wisdom, and loving truth here. Nathan came on behalf of God. Nathan came uh, as a prophet of God, um, which is the case with any brother or sister who comes to us, comes to you with, to, to address sin in your life. They are coming on behalf of God. Right now, that, again, that's not a position of, of arrogance and superiority. That's a position of humility. I've I've been asked by God to kind of come to you and talk to you about this because it's serious. Sin is serious, right? Um, but but Nathan uh, had a relationship with David. He knew him well. He he came in him uh, in love, wanting what's best for David. And and if you stop and think about it, you listen, you, you realize, you know, uh, Nathan could have said, you know what. I don't, I don't really care. Nathan, uh, David did that. That's his business. He's king. You know what that is? That's not love. That's apathy. And the problem is many of us uh, allow apathy to settle into our own hearts when it comes to our brother and sister in Christ's sin. Rather than talking to them, rather than having that conversation, we allow apathy to settle in our hearts. But Nathan came in love. But he also came in truth, didn't he? He said, you are the man. What a line. Like didn't, didn't, didn't sugarcoat it at all. David's, David got his like, you know, self-righteousness. He was like, we're going to find this guy. We're going to make this guy pay. This is totally unjust. This is wrong. You know, you can see him kind of getting red faced over this. And then Nathan looks at him. You are the man. Dun, dun, dun. You know, you can hear the music in the background. I'm just, you know, like a drama, right? But, but you can feel the weight of this moment. It's truth. He got hit hard with truth. Nathan didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't make it seem like it was okay. But again, this is why it's important that Nathan came with a, in a loving relationship with, with David. Uh, David didn't read about it on Twitter, right? Person didn't tweet, uh, Nathan didn't go on Twitter and tweet about David and, and all the sin he had committed. He came to him as a friend and confidant. And verse 13 tells us David responded by saying, I have sinned against the Lord. That was it. That was all David said there. He didn't, he didn't uh, try to, oh my gosh, you know what? I was, uh, let, me, let me tell you what was happening in that moment that kind of helps mitigate my guilt here. I really wasn't you know, in that moment. I was kind of thinking about other, other things and then, you know, and then she just kind of caught my eye and you know, I saw her kind of wink at me, I think. And you know, he didn't try to make excuses. He knew that what he had done was evil. And he said, I have sinned against the Lord. That's all he had to say. And let's, I'll say this, that is often the sign of, of real conviction, of real uh, reception from a person is they don't have a lot to say, except, yeah, I, I sinned. 
when we're confronted with sin, we often respond in different ways. And I, I kind of was thinking about this this week. And I think there's like three animals that capture how you and I respond when we're typically confronted with sin. Uh, or cockroaches, armadillos, or octopuses. Uh, cockroaches, you know, they run from the light. Armadillos, they circle up and protect themselves. And an octopus, uh, you know, releases ink to distract its, its, uh, the, the, the one that's pursuing them. How many times are you and I like a cockroach? Uh, someone, someone comes to us, a friend, and we know they, maybe they've spoken to us or maybe we know what they want to speak to us about. And they're like reaching out to us and they finally get us face to face. And they're like, oh yeah, you know, I'm sorry I didn't respond to your email, text or, you know, uh, phone call and your voicemails. I, I lost my phone three weeks ago and forgot my email password. You know, we, we try to hide. We try to act like it didn't happen. We try to avoid that person so that, that, so that they can't talk to us because the idea is somehow if I don't have to talk to them about it, then it's not real. We hide. Sometimes we're like armadillos. We lock down, we, we, we circle up, we, we, we put the armor on, we protect ourselves. We're like, you're not getting in here. You might as well go bother somebody else because you're not getting through this. We put up a tough exterior. How often are we like an octopus? Somebody comes, they say something to us, they say, hey, I'm concerned about this, or you hurt me in this way. And it's like, uh, we're like the octopus that squirts ink out to, and, and to distract other people. And we're like, oh yeah, what about your sin? What about what you've done? Let me tell you about the sin you've committed against me. Let me tell you about that person over there. Or let me tell you about these circumstances over here that are really the, the, the issue at hand. Again, distract. Look at that. Look at that over there. Look at you, but don't look at me. And we try to distract from the moment. Honestly, your family of origin plays a huge role in this. I know that's, you might not like that, but your family of origin plays a huge role. How your family dealt with conflict. If your family uh, dealt with conflict well, uh, if, they, if they avoided, you know, the two extremes are avoiding conflict completely and the other one is everything is conflict, right? Um, and, and what you need to understand, those are the two unhealthy families. It's not that a healthy family enjoys conflict and unhealthy families don't, right? It's, it's that a healthy family understands that the, the cost of, of working through sin, working through difficult moments, that, the, that they don't shy away from uh, the fact they don't like to have conflict. They, they don't shy away from that in order because the benefit on the other side is reconciliation, restoration, and wholeness. I grew up, I'll be honest, I grew up in a family like this. I was, I was very, very blessed. Um, you know, my, I remember family meetings, us sitting around on the couch in the living room and having hard conversations about things I was doing or someone was doing. And, and, you know, the great thing was, it was, there was, it was a very open time where, where even obviously mom and dad did this, uh, started the conversation, but they were open to receiving as well. They were open to saying like, Hey, how, you know, how has this, how have I been affecting you? Um, and, and I would say, you know, it's, it's been cool to see that in my own family to, to raise my, my kids this way. And for parents, I would say this, uh, this is important. It's important for you to model this with your kids sit, sitting down and having hard conversations. And I would say hard conversations that let, where, where you repent. Um, and, and I'll tell you this, you know, we've had hard conversations the last year in my household, difficult conversations. Um, and it's crazy, you know, I'll tell you, 
uh, parents, if you raise your kids, eventually they will sit you down and tell you they're concerned about things in your life. And they, and I've had some of those conversations in the last year where, you know, they've been like, hey, you know, worried about this. What about that? And, and I'm like, stop it. I taught you this. <laughs> Leave me alone, right? <laughs> That's my impulse. But no, I know, I know they're loving me. You know, I've created monsters, but I know they're loving me, right? Kids, my, my kids are now young adults and, and uh, it's their way of loving me. And I want them to continue that pattern because really healthy families and Jesus's family being a family, right? It's not about avoiding, it's not about avoiding conflict or there is no conflict, right? We're sinners. We, we're gonna sin against each other and we're going to get caught in our own sin. Right, and so so what we do then in that context is create a space that no one's happy about. No one's like, yeah, let's do this. We're going to talk about sin, talk about my sin. Nobody's excited about it, but it is a part of sanctification. It's part of our growth, right? And it's how we're able. It also helps us feel loved. It feels loved when we're safe to be able to talk about our sin openly with others. Now, that was approaching sin. Let's hit repenting of sin uh, and we'll close. Repenting of sin is David in Psalm 51. And this should tell us something, right? David literally wrote a song about his worst moment of his life. (laughs) This should tell us something. Psalm 51, David says, verses one through 12, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And this is the process of repentance. This is David, David's process. And I'm gonna walk through this quickly. The first is confession of sin before God. This is what, when someone comes to you and, and calls out something that you know is a sin, the very first instinct in your mind should be, I have sinned against God. Just like what David says, I have sinned against God. And this psalm is full of David's recognition, not just in the beginning, but throughout the psalm, that it's his sin, that he did it. He said, he uses language, my transgressions, my iniquities, my sin. This is the, the, the language of one who is not just convicted of sin, but, but hates their sin and longs to, to, and knows that it's created a barrier between them and God. He didn't make excuses. He doesn't explain things away. He acknowledged his sin before God. And along with this, connected with this, the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's one of the ways that we're all outed, right? Now, I know you're like thinking if you, you just tuned in, you're new, you're just kind of connecting with us uh, or church and you're like, great, I, I just got told I'm a sinner. Well, yes. The biblical framework says we have all sinned. Every human being has sinned against God, 
right? We, we have all uh, uh, broken God's. We've all transgressed, and transgressed God's commands, God's will for us. And so, you know, if you're a sinner, welcome. You're in good company because we're all sinners. So there's a recognition, there's a confession of sin before God. Secondly, there's a sorrow that comes with that that leads to forsaking of sin. So sorrow, not just the sorrow, because we can be really sorry for sin, but not be sorry enough to forsake it. The precondition is being honest about our sin, but what goes along with that in a godly person is, uh, is sorrow over the sin that leads to forsaking that sin. David's in a dark place in this passage, right? You can read it, you can hear the turmoil in his heart. And, he's, and at one point he's saying, God, it feels like you've broken my bones. That's sorrow. He's feeling it in his bones. He's like, I, I see what I've done and I see it in its ugliness. There's a sorrow that comes with, with, with sin. Um, we've all experienced sorrow over sin, right? It's, it, that's, that's one thing. Like we can be sorry that, that uh, you know, we hurt someone in our family, largely just because it's created some disturbance in our family, but not because we ourselves feel a sense of culpability and responsibility. But this sorrow leads to repentance, which is what we're talking about. It begins with acknowledging the sin before God and leads to this, this sense of, of seeing it fully and wanting to uh, be done with it and get rid of it. Yes, you actually come to hate your sin. Now, this is very intertwined with the first one, right? The idea of confession of sin before God. Uh, it's, you, can't, you can't confess your sin before God in a very disinterested, well, I haven't really felt it yet, but I you can confess and you should confess because it's true, even if you don't yet feel the sorrow and weight of it. But it's important to, to not try to, to get past this sorrow. You see, sin is a monster in a closet and you can be mad that you opened up the closet door and let that monster out and that monster did some damage. Uh, but then you end up tucking that monster back in the closet and shutting the door. What, what we're talking about here, godly grief says, I hate the monster. I'm not gonna put the monster back in the closet. I'm going to put my hands around its neck and choke the life out of it. I'm gonna kill this monster. We're not putting him back in the dark to hide and continue to grow. We're gonna take this monster out. We're gonna kill it. I'm gonna invite some friends over and we're gonna kill this thing. That's godly sorrow. Do you feel sorrow over your sin so much that you're ready to go to war over it? Seriously, today, sitting here right now watching this, do you feel sorrow over your sin so much that you're ready to kill it? Because if you're not, that, that sense of comfort, that sense of apathy, that sense of indifference is satanic. It is as if Satan is just, you know, just coaxing our back. They're there now, relax. It's okay. It's not that bad. Everybody sins. You're fine. You're going to be okay. You've trusted Jesus. You're going to get to heaven. And we let that sin settle rather than focusing on it and saying, this thing has to die. We're ready to go to war. Hebrews 12, 4 says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. The reason we, I, I'm convinced, the reason we don't feel enough sorrow for sin is because we don't see God's holiness for what it, what it is. We don't see him for who he is. We don't see what our sin really is. And we don't see what it did to Jesus, that it slaughtered the son of God. 
that the son of God was slaughtered so that we could be saved and rather and, and, and free from sin. And rather than living in that and going, man, I want to kill this thing uh, because this thing was killing me until Jesus came along and I don't want it to have a place in my life. Rather than going to war with it, we, we become indifferent to it and we make peace with it. Thirdly, recognition of a debt owed. So sorrow comes, but then a recognition that, that sin creates a debt. Listen, we, we know this. We know this. If, if, uh, if someone holds up a liquor store at gunpoint gun point and shoots the, the clerk, like our society doesn't go, you know what? It's okay. It's fine. No, there's a debt. There's a debt that needs to be paid. That debt is owed. If someone robs someone else of their life savings, they don't get to just get off. There is a debt, actual physical debt to be owed, but also a debt for the crime itself. And if, if we have that sense of justice in our minds, if someone attacked you uh, on the street for no reason at all and beat you and took your money, you wouldn't think, well, you know what? There's no debt there. They don't know anything. No, we, we have a sense of owing. So when, when we commit injustice against God, when we sin against God, there is a debt that is created and someone has to pay. Otherwise, injustice happens and God in his essence cannot allow injustice to exist. The simple question is, where's the justice for God when we show contempt for him by sinning? Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. In other words, the debt of sin is death. That that's the only, that's the only, uh, only outcome that's possible is death. That's justice. David was left with a guilt he could not endure and a sorrow that is as great as it was could not atone for his sin, Right? And David, David pleads with God not to impute his guilt to him. He says, don't hold this on me. Don't overwhelm me. Don't let this, 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 uh, this impurity, this sin, this transgression rest on me. Take it. Free me from it. And what he was doing in this was throwing himself on the mercy of God. Throwing himself on the mercy of God. He saw the debt, he felt the sorrow, he knew he couldn't pay the debt, and the only, only, way, only way out was as if God chose in his own plan to forgive David by paying the price himself. David said in verse 16, I, I would make it up to you. I would write a huge check to the church. I would bring lots of offerings. I would sing praise songs all the time to you, God. I would read my Bible 24 hours a day, seven days a week, if that would somehow make up for it, but I can't. There's a debt that, that we owe, but that we can't pay. And the good news is when you get to that point, that's actually where the grace of God enters. And that's the final point is experiencing the grace of God. So there's a confession of sin. There's a sorrow. There's a recognition of a debt owed and there's experiencing the grace of God. Verses seven through 10 is a powerful showing of God's grace being poured out over and over again on David's life. And he, in particular, he references purging me with hyssop. And this is, a, this is something completely lost in our culture and our, our, our context, right? But hyssop was a very important uh, um, um, a plant used in, in the Old Testament. It was used, 
hyssop branches were used uh, in the Passover during the, when the Passover, when Israel left Egypt, the hyssop branch was to be dipped into the blood of the lamb that was the Passover meal. And that blood was to be uh, spread over the doorpost with the hyssop. And that blood was to protect them from the angel of death. In other words, this house has been covered. That's just one example. It was also used in the ceremonial cleansing of lepers in a household. And as part of a ritual sacrifice of a heifer, of a heifer, a, a cow to a remove impurity and to purify things and consecrating them for God's service. So one consistency about hyssop. Hyssop was, was both the covering and the cleansing of sin. The covering and the cleansing of sin. So he was saying, wash me clean, make me whole, cover my sin. And God did. I don't know if it occurred to you. I mean, I said it earlier, but, but Psalm 51 is David recording this whole uh, the, the experience is recorded in scripture. He records the actual repentance, right? The actual moment. He writes a song about it. He, he, he doesn't hold back. It even, it even has the, 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 um, the heading in the original Hebrew at the beginning. If you look above verse one, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is David recording the worst moment of his life. Why? Because in this moment, God's grace was greater than his sin. God's grace was greater than his sin. And it was in this moment that he could be free from the power of sin. We talked about this last Sunday on Easter, that Jesus died on the cross as the permanent, ultimate Passover lamb, covering our sin and freeing us from guilt, shame, and fear, right? This is what repentance does in us. This is why it's central. This is why it's so important to what God is doing in our midst. And I wanna challenge you today. I wanna challenge you to think about what God is doing in your life, how God can and should be using other people to help uh, address sin in your life and how you're responding. Are you responding to in repentance? Do you respond when the spirit convicts you? Do you respond when, when someone else says something, even unintentionally, that brings out sin uh, to your mind, brings it to your mind? Do you repent? Do you feel the sorrow for sin? This is God's plan for his family. Dealing with sin and repenting of sin is at the core of all that God is doing in his family. The question is, are we a part of it? Are we resisting it? I invite you, invite you to join God in this, to join God this. Maybe it's today as we close, God's laid someone on your heart that you need to go talk to. They're a brother or sister in Christ and they are in sin and you see it and you know it and they know it, but no one, you haven't talked to them about it because it's hard, because you don't like conflict. But that's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus says we humble ourselves, we come in wisdom and we speak truth and love. Love that person enough to go. On the flip side, are you open to repentance? 
What role does repentance have in your life? You know, what's interesting is if you're quick to repent, if you have a heart that's sensitive to your own sin, then when someone else comes to you and points out your sin, you're not gonna flow up, throw up the deflector shields and the, you know, the squirt out ink to deflect, uh, look at that over there or, or call the person's sin out. Well, you're a sinner too. You're going to say, you know what? Thank you. This was hard. I know it was hard for you. It was hard for me to hear it, but I felt loved by the fact that you wouldn't let me go down that path without talking to me. God doesn't want me to keep going with this. Will you help me? You know what those words are? That's the words of a mature follower of Jesus that is ready to go to war against their sin. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that um, you did the hard thing for us. You came you spoke the truth to us in love, always loving, always truthful, always wanting what's best for us, demonstrating humility, demonstrating wisdom. I pray you would give us that kind of heart when it comes to others. Not that we would run around and nitpick, God, that's not your plan, but that you, that we would have a sensitivity to sin, not just in our lives, but we would love others well enough to not let them go into sin without talking to them. Give us grace to do that. And then Lord, give us grace to receive it. Help us to open up our lives to others, to, be, to, to give one or two people that full access to say, you have the right. You have the right to come to me at any point. I invite you to come to me. Lord, give us the grace to do that. We need it. We want to protect. We want to hide. We want to avoid conflict. But in your spirit, we can be who you've called us to be and be the family that Jesus died for us to be. In your name we pray, amen.